come a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. This is Ghouls Only Cast, a podcast about lesser-known films across all genres. Who wants to die for art? I told you, no more deaths in the house! Hey everyone, welcome back to Ghouls Only Cast. This is Meg. So at the end of the last episode, I said that I wanted to extend Halloween out just a little bit more, and now we are almost to Thanksgiving. My birthday is in just a few days. I'm going to be 29. And so with this episode, I'm doing a kids movie because that's just so fucking typical of me. Today I'm going to be doing The Worst Witch. So The Worst Witch was a made-for-TV movie from 1986. It had a remarkable cast. It had graphics that have aged like milk. And some of the strangest music numbers I've ever cringed at but somehow still got stuck in my head. It isn't for everyone, whether you're an adult or a child, but I think it's almost like a time capsule that gets more and more interesting to open with each passing year. The film was created via a joint effort of HBO and ITV Central, then named Central Independent Television. It's a story about a young magic user at an academy that is castle-like in nature and their difficulties fitting in, especially since their potions professor seems to have it out for them, and the popular rich classmate that seeks to sabotage them at every term. Ultimately though, our hero proves themselves and saves the school from being taken over by an evil adversary of the headmistress. Rhetorical question here, does that sound familiar at all to you? I'll just leave it at that and spare further disappointment in J.K. Rowling. The Worst Witch is a 70-minute children's film that is essentially a Halloween special. It even went so far as to premiere on Halloween of 86 and was adapted from the Worst Witch book series by British writer Jill Murphy. This film mainly borrows from the first book in the series, which was published in 1974. The adaptation was written by Mary Willis, who had a short career but wrote an after-school special called Wanted. The Perfect Guy, starring a 14-year-old Ben Affleck and frequent Mel Brooks collaborator, the amazing Madeline Kahn playing his mother, as well as a few episodes of The Babysitter's Club. Now, it's always a toss-up when an author is getting a film or TV adaptation of their work. Authors obviously view their work as an extension of themselves, like any artist would. Sometimes they're pleased, but often they feel that their work wasn't adapted properly. And that's why, even though Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is a great movie, Stephen King disliked it so much that he oversaw every minute part of the comatose car crash that is the television adaptation of The Shining. And that also led Stephen King to the infamous commercial for his directorial debut, Maximum Overdrive, wherein he, seemingly coked out of his fucking mind, tells the viewer that if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And in a similar vein, most people are unaware that the Miyazaki animated film Howl's Moving Castle is based on a book by Diana Wynne-Jones, who is astoundingly underrated. I really, really enjoy her books. She had an eyebrow raised at some of the choices made in the film, but ultimately enjoyed the adaptation of her work. Jill Murphy was positively mortified by The Worst Witch's 1986 adaptation. She called the screenplay appalling, and that there were various mess-ups regarding the story, 
and in particular, the costuming. She said that the little girls on set practically cried when they were shown the hats that they would be forced to wear, which is fair because those hats are literally some of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in my entire life. The hats look like a spray-painted gridiron football with a brim. They look like if you shrunk one down, you could put them into a gun and successfully murder someone. I'm not exactly a fashion guru, but if Jill Murphy says that these hats nearly brought tears to the eyes of children, I believe it. She also absolutely hated the effects, saying that Diana Rigg and Tim Curry did their absolute best with poor material and generally seemed to want to wash her hands a bit. There have been several adaptations of The Worst Witch ever since this one, which she has been much happier about, so good for her. The movie shows its age in multiple ways, which is the big draw for me and why I enjoy it so much. I didn't grow up watching this movie. In fact, I first saw it when I was like... 24. I mean, the effects are just incredible. Just imagine the semi-educational tapes that you were likely forced to watch in elementary school when the teacher didn't feel like putting up with your shit for that day, and you're basically in the ballpark. I mean, we've got weird green screen backgrounds, awkward fades to represent transformation, Diana Riggs spinning in place like she's an important newspaper headline or a prize wheel, whichever you prefer, Tim Curry flying in the same matter as the shark breaking the glass in Jaws 3D, Tim Curry breaking into 100 cubes. Tim Curry's hair turning MS Paint green. Tim Curry's face superimposed over a Betamax tape. Tim Curry's cape being a window into an alternate universe where your dog turned into a cat and your sister turned into a bat. It's a trip. The visual effects guy and the special effects guy have only the worst witch listed in their known credits, and I don't know whether I should be disappointed or relieved by that. The music numbers really show their age too, just by being a distinct style of child-friendly 80s media that just does not exist anymore. The theme song is really shrill, awkward, with a flat and uninspired sounding keyboard in the background. And that is commonplace throughout all of these. It's just the keyboard is the big issue with everything in it. And like, I wanna hate it, but for some reason, I just can't. The Worst Witch, though not explicitly stated or treated as such, is a movie for little girls. The main song is about growing up and wishing that time would hurry up and pass you by so that you won't have to deal with the troubles of being young anymore. Which, like I said, as someone who's about to turn 29, makes me want to fucking cry because I remember feeling that way too. I hated being a kid, but by feeling that way, I actually missed out on a lot of things. Wanting to be more mature or cool or whatever. Turns out, though, a lot of the time when you're treated like an idiot and made fun of when you're a kid, it doesn't actually mean that adulthood is preferable. It means that you're surrounded by assholes, which our main character in this movie definitely is. The theme song was sung by a young woman named Bonnie Langford, who would probably be best known as Mel Bush, who was a companion of the sixth and seventh doctors on the long-running BBC show Doctor Who. Other than that, it looks like it would take me forever to go through all of her accomplishments. Apparently she had a really big figure skating career, so I'll just move on from that. There are two other music numbers that are in the movie, but I'll get to them in the plot summary because they are just truly something to behold. If you know, you know, and if you don't know, may your god help you is all that I can say. 
The Worst Witch was directed by Robert Young, who seems to have no clear genre that he prefers to work in, doing everything from comedy, drama, to romance, to rabies scare movie. He's worked with the Notorious Hammer Film Productions and has collaborated on different occasions with Eric Idle and John Cleese of Monty Python fame. He made a TV adaptation in the 90s of Jane Eyre, but he also made a film called Blood Monkey, a sci-fi original where a massive missing link style ape terrorizes a bunch of people in a jungle or something. I don't know, whatever. But because this is a TV movie, a lot of the other credits just aren't that exciting, so I think I'm just going to move on to the cast, which is exciting. The main character, Mildred Hubble, is played by a preteen Feruza Balk, who is just such an iconic individual that I could write a whole episode just on her and the interesting life that she and her immediate family have led. She started acting three years before The Worst Witch came out, and this started with a made-for-TV Christmas movie, and followed that up with the nightmare-drenched and lesser-known sequel, Return to Oz, which, in my opinion, is superior to Wizard of Oz. I'm sorry, that's just me. I like it a whole lot more. She's become pretty much synonymous with witchy roles, starting with this one and then following up in the 90s with her well-known role as Nancy in The Craft. She typically plays very strong-willed characters in wildly different genres, from the sophomoric humor of Adam Sandler's The Waterboy to the gut-wrenching peer into neo-Nazi white supremacy that is American History X. Feruza is one of those actors that makes acting look effortless. She just exudes cool and is honestly just a treasure. When she was cast in The Craft, she was actually running her own occult shop. And when she isn't acting, she's recording music, painting, designing t-shirts for her shop, all that sort of thing. She just does what she wants to do. She's a main talking head in the documentary Lost Soul that's about the rise, fall, and butchering of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau adaptation. It's a really, really great documentary. I love it a lot. And it really gives you a sense that Feruza is a really good friend. She's a really loyal friend, but she really draws the line at hearing that you scaled a tree and wouldn't come down for anyone, which is what Richard Stanley did when the movie was starting to get out of his hands. She's done some indie films as well. One that I can't seem to find anywhere, but I remember enjoying it a lot when it came out, is called Wild Tigers I Have Known, which is a coming-of-age story that deals with the themes of transgender identity and sexuality. If you follow Feruza on social media, she's one of those people that really takes interest in the wildlife around them and does her best to support it. By that, I mean she seems to really love raccoons, and they seem to love her too. I have a signature from her on a glossy photo that I got directly from her some years ago, and she was nice enough to actually write me a really thoughtful letter along with it, which I feel speaks volumes about her character. She's great, and she's just absolutely adorable in this movie. The main antagonist, I think you could say, of Mildred is Miss Hardbroom who's played by Dame Diana Rigg, who very sadly left us just a few weeks ago. Rewatching this movie for my notes was really, really bittersweet. Diana Rigg is another actress that chiefly has played very strong and independent characters from her role as Emma Peel in the TV series The Avengers, and she was also Teresa DiVincenzo, who was the only Bond girl who ever got the guy to marry her. I love it because On Her Majesty's Secret Service is the brief blip in the James Bond series where George Lazenby played James Bond, and 
spoiler, Diana's character is killed. So at the beginning of the next Bond film, Sean Connery has returned and he's killing everyone responsible for the murder of Teresa and even strangles a woman with her own bra. My first encounter with Diana Rigg was as Vincent Price's drag king daughter in Theater of Blood, which is a really great movie. I fucking love it. Diana Rigg just had a massive career in theater and film that spanned so many decades. She was even in a movie with the Muppets, which in my opinion is the definition of prestige. One of her more recent roles that most would know her as is Olena Tyrell, the sassy grandma of Queen Marjorie Tyrell in Game of Thrones. Diana had so many achievements under her belt. She was a DBE and CBE of the British Empire. She had four honorary degrees from four different universities. She was a chancellor of a university and a visiting professor of another. She was the winner of a BAFTA and a Tony. She was a writer, a patron of charities, and was just generally known as having an electric personality that wasn't too far off from the character she portrayed in Game of Thrones. She does her best with the material in this movie, doesn't phone it in even though she could, and that's why she was the best. The headmistress, Miss Cackle, and her evil sister, Agatha, are played by Charlotte Ray, who is an Emmy-winning actress, singer, comedian, and voice actor. Her acting choices to differentiate between her two characters in this film are kind of unintentionally hilarious, and I really get a kick out of it. Miss Cackle is a kind of bubbly but long-suffering educator who has this real witch-based radical feminist streak that you unfortunately only get a small taste of, and Agatha is just this absolute caricature of an evil witch with this silly growling smoker's voice and is just generally kind of gross. I'll get more into that later. But Charlotte Ray is probably best known as Edna Garrett, who was the housekeeper on the first two seasons of the well-known 70s sitcom Different Strokes. In one of these episodes, Edna helps out at an all-girls school. This singular episode became the basis of a spin-off show called The Facts of Life. Charlotte still plays the character of Edna, but she's working full-time at the girls' school rather than chasing around Gary Coleman. I said in my first episode that I was shocked as a child to learn that Gary was an adult playing a child, so I won't repeat myself, but... I just did anyway. <laughs> Shit. But anywho, I can't think of a modern show that has this similar model where a main character just gets a new job and therefore that creates an entirely new show. Granted, I don't really watch a lot of new TV shows. I'm too busy watching Taxi on Hulu and unintentionally staring at Tony Danza's butt, I'm sorry. Charlotte's character, Edna Garrett, has this really extensive lore on Wikipedia. More than like most real life people get in their personal life tab, it's kind of fascinating, but she went on to be in the facts of life for eight seasons, cementing herself as a TV star and eventually handing the reins over to Cloris Leachman. <laughs> when I think of Cloris Leachman, I just think of her in the Mel Brooks movie High Anxiety, where at the end she falls out of a window holding a broom and you think that she was secretly a witch the whole time and she's about to fly off, but she just falls to her death. It's amazing. Charlotte went on to do various roles that were kind of all over the place after the facts of life and the worst which looks like it may have been the first one she did but I had a hard time telling but she voiced in a Tom and Jerry movie and apparently she was in that Adam Sandler movie You Don't Mess With the Zohan. Man that's the second mention of Adam Sandler. Do all roads just lead to Adam Sandler? What the hell? 
She had some health troubles, but lived to be 92. She passed away just two years ago. I mean, there's so many cool women in this weird movie. And that leads me to the only man in the entire film who needs almost no introduction whatsoever. If you don't know who he is, you're either living under a rock or a child with awful parents who have awful taste or some nightmarish combination of the two. The Grand Wizard, AKA Big Daddy Wiz, Mr. Tim Curry. Where do I even begin? I mean, do I have to? The man is the patron saint of Halloween. From Frankenfurter and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Pennywise and the TV adaptation of Stephen King's It, Darkness and Legend, The Butler and Clue, I mean, I can keep going here. His career is insanely huge. From music, to Broadway theater, to film, television, voice acting, he was Nigel Thornberry for God's sake. So many voices and gargoyles, Duckman, Ah Real Monsters, he was the narrator for all the audiobook versions of a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket, Long John Silver and Muppet Treasure Island, Prestige, The Weird Hotel Manager in Home Alone 2. I've said before now that I would need a whole episode to go through someone's accomplishments, but Tim would need about five or six episodes in hell, maybe I will someday. He is an unstoppable force. On Halloween, there was a Rocky Horror fundraiser this year and Tim participated and even sang, even though he's now very shy and selective of what he does uh, in public due to having a significant stroke eight years ago. He's still fucking cool. Doesn't matter. That stroke could have killed him, and his recovery from it and his perseverance to keep improving himself even with limitations is a testament to what a force of nature he is. I mean, he had a stroke in 2012, and by 2014, he was voice acting in the short and wonderful Cartoon Network series Over the Garden Wall. I don't want to sound corny, but that's fucking rock and roll. What an absolute legend. I feel like I can't say too much more about Tim. He is larger than life, and I can't properly do him justice here. He has been a huge part of my life as someone who loves and appreciates film and art, and I can guarantee that he has been a part of your life too, whether you realize it or not. We owe a lot of entertaining hours in our lives to Tim Curry. His role in The Worst Witch is so small, it's practically non-existent, but he manages in the span of maybe like five minutes to absolutely steal the entire show and become the main takeaway of the whole damn movie. I will get to that though, don't worry. So without further ado, formatted to fit your 11-inch CRT television set, here it is, The Worst Witch. First, let me just thank this random person online named Sonia. When I was doing research, I happened to stumble upon this ancient webpage that was hosted on Angel Fire. Do you guys remember Angel Fire? I mean, it really fucking takes me back. I am so nostalgic for the unpolished and homebrewed internet of my youth, like the heyday of fan fiction, movie photo gallery sites, early MySpace vampire freaks. <laughs> so good in just this deeply unexplainable way. I mean, it was shit, but it was great at the same time. But yeah, so I found this random page where this person decided to type out the entire script for The Worst Witch. And not only that, made a note that they were doing this completely from memory. There are even moments where there's parentheses with, can't remember this part, casually put in. Like to start, they put all the lyrics of the theme song in, which are totally spot on, but there's this other line that just says, can't tell what she's saying here. I feel like this person and I are kindred spirits. 
because this totally looks like something that I would have done when I was a kid. I mean, in fact, when I was 11, I had a little web page on a site that was meant for quizzes but was chiefly used for posting fanfiction, and I would meticulously catalog South Park quotes on it. This web page just touched my stupid heart in the weirdest way, so thank you, Sonya. I hope you are continuing to be as obsessive about weird shit as you were when you did this. The film starts with this crunchy theremin music that's placed with lo-fi thunder sounds set along with an exterior shot of a castle, which was actually a real school called St. Michael's College in Timbury Wells, England. The weird thing, though, is that they decided to collage the school around this footage of storm clouds moving at, like, Formula One speed, and it looks so incredibly unnatural. Like, the school and the surrounding grass are suspended in some kind of cloudy hellscape where the students find out they've been dead this entire entire time. It doesn't fade in on this, it's just BAM! Here we are and here's what to expect. Take it or leave it. But whether you like it or not, here we are. This is Miss Cackle's International Academy for Witches, founded in 1604. I did some digging and in the UK there was actually a Witchcraft Act of 1604, which brought the penalty of death to anyone found guilty of conjuring or communing with evil spirits. It was later modified to make witchcraft a felony, which transferred the power of an ecclesiastic trial over to a common law one, so that the criminal procedure was just a lot more ordinary. First-time offenders were jailed for a year, and if they were caught doing witchy stuff again, they were killed. But rather than burning at the stake, they transitioned to hanging much quicker. How nice. But what a fucking ballsy move to establish an academy to pump out witches the same year that the courts found a way to streamline witch trials in real life. Maybe there's a conspiracy there, who knows. With another weird use of green screen, Diana Rigg and all the pixelated artifacts that are outlining her flies on a broomstick up to a bell where she beats the hell out of it, signaling for all the girls to wake up. You could just cast a spell or have a rope on the ground that you could pull, but hey, that's just me. All the girls scurry about getting ready and the sickly sweet theme song kicks in. We get our first glimpse of Mildred, our main character, who hits all the marks of being a klutz within seconds of showing up on screen. She's the last to wake up, she drops her stuff, she falls all over the other girls, she trips and yanks the string on the wall that affects the bell, wait. So they do have something that they could pull and it would make the bell go. Miss Hardbroom doesn't have to fly up there and batter it, she just does it to release her rage, makes sense, I get it. So that's our main character in a nutshell. She's a caricature of clumsiness, but it's not played off as slapsticky or funny. Like, Mildred genuinely looks distraught and upset by how much she's fumbling and stumbling around. It makes you feel sympathetic towards her rather than see her as annoying. So the girls have a potion test in the morning, to which Mildred's bully, Ethel Hallow, says, I'm so pleased that I've learned all the spells, and I already can't stand her and I want her to jump out of a window. If you're so great at this shit already, why don't you just leave and get your GWD or whatever they call it in educational witchcraft. I mean, I probably seem like I'm coming in pretty spicy here, but you will get it later. She's awful. Mildred confides to her friend Maud that even though she's been studying, she's really nervous because she just knows that the potions professor, Miss Hardbroom, is going to yell at her, which makes me question this academy even more and then inwardly say again in my life when I discover a new piece of magic-based children's entertainment, J.K. Rowling, you are a dirty, dirty thief. 
So the potions room isn't really a dungeon or anything like that. It doesn't even look like a set. It's more like a chemistry room in a school, which I'm pretty sure it actually is. But the best part is that there's an inflatable skeleton by the door. I don't know what the thought process was in that, but I am not only in love with this, I'm jealous that I don't have an inflatable skeleton of my own by my door. There's also a drawing of a cauldron on the chalkboard that has an arrow pointing to it saying, cauldron. Brilliant. Diana Rigg announces the test and is just positively devouring the scenery, even though she's in the background. Like I said before, she totally could have phoned this in, but she just uses the opportunity to just put a roller coaster of flourishes with everything she says. Mildred says to Maude that she just knows she isn't going to pass, and when Feruza says that, she suddenly has, like, the accent of an elderly Irish woman. It's really unusual, but it just adds extra flavor to this confusion story do that the movie is making. The potion test is a partnered lab where the girls have to recreate a laughter potion. Mildred describes to my kind of cooking style wherein you go, I can't remember how much of this to add. Better just add the whole thing and hope it doesn't blow up in my face. Tried and true, especially if the food blog recipe you're using refreshes and you don't feel like scrolling down 10 feet to get past the author's entire story about their hubby Jeremiah and their children Aiden, Jaden, Braxton, and Hayden. But for Mildred and Maude, it doesn't work out and instead of a laughter potion, they make a disappearing potion, which to be honest, let's face it, not what was assigned, but frankly, way, way cooler. The girls are scolded regardless and Mildred is sent to the headmistress to explain why she failed the test, which I think is overkill. I mean, it was a three minute test. Why should she have to go to the highest level of admin at the school and explain herself? Oh well. Miss Hardbroom dismisses the class and either Mildred or Maude smack a girl on the ass as she leaves. Mildred and Maude gradually begin to reappear piece by piece in yet another amazingly dated effect. Mildred goes to Miss Cackle's office, which looks exactly like every higher up in arts and sciences department's look. Brass bric-a-brac everywhere, tribal masks, disorganized books, and colorful scarves clogging every conceivable surface. But this isn't art school confidential, it's Charlotte Ray telling Feruza Balk that she needs to apply herself or she'll never get her MFA. I mean, her junior witch's certificate. Charlotte Ray seems nice and sympathetic to Mildred, but then very kindly tells her that she's the worst witch in school, which I'm sure is just the motivation she needs. I know being told that I'm the worst wouldn't make me feel depressed and anxious at all. But Charlotte Ray really is great here. She could have also phoned it in, but didn't. Everyone in this is just surprisingly professional and not just looking to get paid. And if they were just looking to get paid, they, they're still trying, which is, you know, good enough for me. So it's nighttime now and Mildred confides in Maude again about her worries that she'll never make it as a witch and that Miss Hardbroom just hates her. They start gossiping about Miss Hardbroom, or HB as they call her, and I'm gonna start calling it because it's a lot faster, about how she was rejected by the Grand Wizard. Suddenly HB pops up out of thin air with a Dario Argento-esque green filter over her, apparently having been spying on the children like all normal professional educators do the entire time. She bitches them out, wishes them pleasant nights, nightmares, and then leaves. In the great hall this morning, JK Rowling, looking at you again, the girls are all jammed together to receive news from Miss Cackle. You finally get a good look at all the extras here, and oh, the hair in this room could just burn a hole in the ozone layer. Oh my god, is dried the fuck out and teased beyond belief. We got poofy mullets, 
thick bowl cuts, or they just have that short but fluffy hairstyle that I can only refer to as Sharp Edges era Tanya Harding. An entire Witches Academy of little Tanya Hardings. I never would have guessed that a sentence like that would ever come out of my mouth, and I'm not mad about that at all, to be honest with you. They all begin to sing the school song together, and it cuts to Charlotte Ray outside wearing a pink wig and generic witch's getup that was probably sold as a set at Walgreens back in the day. She has this gruff smoker's voice and is just wonderfully over the top in trying to differentiate between Miss Cackle and the weird evil bitch named Agatha. Agatha is, naturally, Miss Cackle's evil twin sister who is hanging around the outskirts of the school with her Walgreens witch posse and plotting to take over the school. She says the school is mine, rightfully mine, before my sister stole it. Then this really weird thing happens. Agatha and her lackey go to hide, and Mildred and Maud, I think, bump into them. It's a shot from the ground up towards the sky, and it's like a pile of clothes get thrown into the air with like a whoop noise, and then when it pans down, Agatha and the other witch are splayed out on the ground while Mildred is saying sorry and running inside. It doesn't even look like they threw dummies in the air or anything. It literally looks like they just threw a big ball of laundry into the air. I mean, movie magic, I guess you could say. I don't know. So the big reason why the girls are all gathered together is to announce that the Grand Wizard will be a special guest for their Halloween celebration coming up. I would just like to stop for a moment and point out that the Grand Wizard in this universe has absolutely nothing to do with the Ku Klux Klan, and I'm not really sure why no one thought to stop production one day and point that out. A lot of Americans had their feet in this project. One person had to know that Grand Wizard is a KKK term. It just adds yet another ingredient to the confusion stew, which in this case is a moldy slice of white bread. They have a painting of the Grand Wizard that they then cut to, which looks strikingly like Chris Sarandon for some reason, like definitely not Tim Curry. The other order of business here is to issue each student their own kitten familiar, and Miss Cackle uses this to remind the girls that witches used to be burnt to death, but her mother founded the academy and fought for the formal education of young witches everywhere. She says that her mother was the first witch's liber, and even throws her fists up in solidarity. HB gets on her case, and it's back to the kittens. The kittens are all crammed into one basket. I mean, I'm sure they actually weren't, but it's how it's played off. And each one of the girls comes up to get their very own black kitten. Mildred is the very last and is given a gray and white tabby cat. The cats have this dubbing to them that's clearly a human being making meowing sounds. And when Miss Cackle says that they could you know, just paint Mildred's cat black, it goes, no, <laughs> which leads me back to the bell at the beginning. I mean, couldn't they just use magic to change the color of the cat? Like, why does it have to be paint? In the middle of this scene, we get a music number from Charlotte Ray as Agatha, where she's out in the woods singing about how she'll take over the school and make all the students be filthy, gross, and evil. The instruments in this song, like the other ones, are just a colossal, underwhelming nightmare. I'm talking you know, like a Casio with only half of the batteries put in. The singing in this movie isn't untalented. Everyone in this movie who sings is good at singing, but it's just the music itself that degrades the shit out of it. It's unbelievable. So with their new cats, the girls go out and take their flying lessons and learn to balance their cat on the broom as they fly. 
I regret to announce that the girls had to wear the stupid looking hats for this scene, which really makes your brain just short circuit when it's mixed with the antiquated effects that make all the girls look like they're flying. Mildred has a hell of a time with flying because of course she does. Ethel tattles on Mildred about it and calls her mean names because of course she does. More weird green screen flying that looks like collaged stop motion because of course it does. Miss Cackle and HB argue about whether Mildred will be a total failure or not. Mildred frets and stresses, and Ethel bullies Mildred. I'm beginning to sense a pattern here in this movie. For the next sequence that goes on for way, way too fucking long and for absolutely no reason, all the girls get together and play terror tag indoors throughout the castle, where if you make someone from the other team scream when you see them, your team gets a point. It makes absolutely no sense because the girl keeping score can't see through walls, but seems to be able to tell all the screams apart from long distances. Mildred sees Ethel in a Halloween mask and screams like a hundred times, so her team loses. I really have no clue why this scene exists, and I tend to use it as the designated chore or bathroom break when I watch it during Halloween. And this leads to Mildred and Ethel getting into it with each other, and Mildred threatens to turn Ethel into a frog. Classic. Ethel, who is probably the worst actor in this whole thing, by the way, dares her to try, and we get to see what worst witch spellcasting is. It's really weird rhyming poems, like when Binks gets turned into a cat and Hocus Pocus crossed with Witch Hazel and Looney Tunes. It's like, Manga 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 Moose, Fingus Fingus Fingavoo, Mephistopheles Mrs. Magoo, and then a bunch of other crap that I can't remember. Though I do appreciate the satanic angle that Mildred spiced in there. But she doesn't turn Ethel into a frog. Instead, Ethel is now a piglet in a school bandana. And I take it back when I said that Ethel was popular. All the girls go to pieces making fun of her and laughing at her, though, knowing young girls, she could have actually been popular and they still would have knocked her down ten pegs. All the laughing causes HB to materialize, which is one of the best slash worst effects that we have seen yet. When Diana Rigg shows up, it does that newspaper headline spin. Like, she just spirals out of a black hole right up to the screen. I mean, I really have no words for it. I've been thinking of making an edit of her doing that with that scene transition noise from the Adam West Batman series that, like... <laughs> sound? Please hold me to that, someone. I have to do it. HB tells Mildred to take Ethel to the library and get a reversal spell out of a gigantic book that looks like a Visco Girl's history notes complete with hand-drawn butterflies and curly headers. Fruzabalk is talking to the pig the whole time and Ethel's disembodied voice comes out of the pig, but she pauses every time the real-life pig oinks like she's hiccuping or something. It's kind of cute. Mildred finally casts the spell, which literally has a part in it that goes humpty dumpty yakety yak, and we get this positively ghoulish extreme close-up photo of the pig's face, and slowly Ethel's face is superimposed on top of it with this jerky fading technique that is just marvelous to look at. It's like when they stopped making Animorphs book covers and with the transitioning photos and the diagonal slant and decided to go with lenticular instead, but the lenticular wasn't that great because it was a six dollar paperback, but Ethel is unfortunately back to her old self and she screams that her father is an important wizard and he'll hear about this. Looking at you again, JK Rowling. I know I probably seem like I'm splitting hairs here, but there's just so many similarities it's not even funny. 
So the next scene is one of my favorites, where the girls are all in a classroom passing around Tim Curry's headshot and freaking out and kissing it. Which, I mean, it's hard to say if this was some behind-the-scenes insight or an actual part of the movie. We are all aware of the allure of Tim Curry. I'd say this part is the most believable bit in the whole movie. But the little girls are just gushing over him. Feruza even looks at the picture and then fucking moans at the ceiling like a middle-aged woman watching Magic Mike. Diana Rigg comes in and snatches the picture away and stifles a moan herself. I mean, no one man should have this much power. An entire female population brought to its knees. Incredible, but more importantly, understandable. HB tells the girls that their class has been chosen to do a broomstick formation display on Halloween, kind of like synchronized swimming, but in the sky or something. Diana Rigg explains the whole sequence and is eating so much scenery that it's tantamount to binging. She is just having way too much fun, and much like Evanescence, it does indeed bring me to life and wake me up inside. Maybe not exactly Evanescence, maybe the karaoke cover by Bev and Bob. If you haven't seen Bab and Bob's covers on YouTube, please God, do yourself a favor. In a perfect world, they would make a feature film of the Maya Mortal fanfiction, and Bab and Bob's version of Bring Me to Life would be the theme song. The girls all try out to be on the flying team since there are only eight spaces and HB is grading them on a 10-point scale. She notices that one girl is flying particularly well, but then once she sees that it's Mildred, she gives her a 4 out of 10. I don't say this a lot, what a bitch. The girls who made the team are called forward afterwards, and I'd like to point out the absolutely incredible surnames that they gave these girls. No Smith, Smythes, or Smithers here, no. We've got Hattrick, Hobgoblin, Warlock, Transvestry. I really wish surnames were a bit more like this rather than the boring shit that we get saddled with at birth. One of the girls is sick from drinking too much laughter potion, which I guess is just what they call being hung over on jungle juice or something in this world. Since she can't participate, Mildred is chosen to take her place. HB notices that Mildred's broom is only being held together by string due to several accidents, and Ethel ever so graciously offers to lend Mildred her spare broom that was a birthday present. Ethel goes to her broom and jinxes it so that Mildred will now have a horrible accident when she rides it. Meanwhile, Agatha and her crew are getting drunk in the woods and planning to descend on the school while the girls sleep in on November 1st. But now it's Halloween. Festivities are beginning and the girls are all waiting around in their pointy hats and robes waiting for the Grand Wizard to show up. This KKK hole just keeps digging itself deeper. But moving on, Mildred asks where he must be, and Mildred is like, oh, you know what wizards are like, they're always late. But I'd like to point out here that she is totally wrong because we all know that a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He always arrives precisely as he means to. And so he does. Tim Curry, suspended completely still yet somehow moving through the air with a cape like a flyaway Technicolor circus tent. I'm guessing they shot him standing normally with his arms out and then just rotated him sideways in post-production, but the effects don't end here. Oh, no, no, no. We have only just fucking begun. As soon as he lands, he goes right into a music number that is the absolute high point of this movie. I mean, holy shit, it comes out of nowhere and you are just so not prepared for it. I mean, we've all seen Rocky Horror, we know that Tim is a great singer, we know he's super expressive, but you did not account for the dumbass rhymes, every sample effect under the sun all jumbled together in the most underwhelming keyboard music ever. 
It starts with Tim just singing on his own with some little ambient whoops and womps there, but then the keyboard kicks in. It's like going down a water slide and instead of flying gracefully through the air and coming down with a satisfying splash, you just bypass the pool entirely and eat shit on the sidewalk. Like eating a box of chocolates and then suddenly one of them has creamed corn in it. Like I said before, the performers are really, really good. The instrumentals just degrade them so much. The song is, of course, about Halloween. You know, anything can happen on Halloween. Your dog could turn into a cat. You know, your sister could become a bat. As the influencers would say these days, Tim Curry is serving some Dr. Seuss realness right now. There's a really great part where he asks, has anybody seen my tambourine? And he just pulls a tambourine out of his cape and starts smacking it. I really feel like I can't do it justice at all. The effects are just next level and it must be seen to be believed. And I'm totally going to just insert the whole song at the end of this podcast. So don't you worry, you are going to get to hear it. After the song, a little CGI pumpkin winks at you. Nice. And now it's time for the flying ceremony. Ethel's curse causes not only Mildred, but most of the girls to lose control of their brooms and they all go crashing into the ground. It's too bad you know that there weren't a bunch of, you know, magical adults, including a grand wizard nearby to stop the girls from falling 30 feet onto their fucking necks, but, you know, the world is an imperfect place. Fortunately, though, none of the girls are paralyzed or dead from this. HB and Miss Cackle just blame Mildred for the whole thing and send her back to the castle with promises of future punishments. Tim Curry uses Mildred as a straw man to say that the future generations of witches are doomed and says that he has another gig somewhere and has to leave immediately, which I'm pretty sure was unscripted. Tim Curry just really wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. Mildred is obviously terrified that she's going to be expelled or worse and decides to run away. When she goes to get her stuff, you can just barely see it in the dark, but there is a pretty large Aladdin Sane era David Bowie poster over a girl's bed. I mean, David Bowie exists in the worst witch universe. It is literally the only prop I've seen in the whole movie that is a pop culture reference. I'd like to think that maybe he's just another famous wizard, or that they're convinced that he is one. I mean, Ziggy Stardust was an alien who's to say that he didn't practice magic as well. David Bowie famously loved the occult, so it's fitting that the witches would love him too. Mildred flies off and becomes superimposed over what looks strikingly like the opening credits of Father Ted, and suddenly hears several witches cackling loudly even though she's at least a mile above the ground. She lands to spy on them and notices that one of them looks like Edna Garrett from The Facts of Life or her headmistress, you know, one of the two. Thankfully for Mildred, Agatha decides to practically scream her entire plan to turn all the girls at school into toads and take over. They smell Mildred and come closer as she somehow manages to pull off a spell that turns Agatha and her cronies into snails. She gathers them all into a box that says Acme Spell Company, very cute, and then heads back to the school. HB catches her and they go to Miss Cackle's office where Mildred explains what she had been doing. After a little convincing, Miss Cackle takes the squealing snails and she and HB talk to them, which is mildly amusing, and then they ask Mildred to turn them back. HB even gives that cop-out that a lot of rude teachers do, the, oh, I'm only mean to you because I know you have potential routine. Mildred turns them back and gets sent upstairs to bed. Maud wakes her up later, and for some reason she's just swinging a live fruit bat back and forth on her finger. I'm confused, but I'm also extremely jealous. I want a fruit bat. So Mildred heads downstairs where she gets a special commendation in front of the whole school. And even better than that, Tim Curry is back! 
He gives a speech that has a lot of witchy vocabulary in it, but is one of those stock morals that they put in a lot of TV and movies that no one really follows in real life. Like about how sometimes, even if someone seems different, they can still make a huge difference and they may go unnoticed, but they truly, truly are special. No. That's what they like to tell you, but in the real world, unless you are perfect or mind-numbingly normal, it seems like that no one gives a shit and they may hate you even more for it. A lot of movies like to appeal to the oddball individual, but in normal life, everyone, especially the school system, particularly the school system, want you to be as uniform as humanly possible. That's why kids who struggle hardly ever get better and why some kids start off very gifted and then fall on the wayside to only achieve anxiety and crippling depression later. Now I may just be bitter because I was out of step at school and the only thing I got was my guidance counselor not sending in my college application with the other kids because she quote, forgot, but I know that she just did not like me at all. If I recall correctly, she said that I would not have gotten in anyway. Oh, but maybe I was essentially just forced to take a gap year because she knew that I had potential. Fuck that noise. I got the Mildred treatment where I had to keep constantly proving myself to teachers that I wasn't a bad kid or stupid, but for me it was because they caught me swearing, or because I dyed my hair weird colors, or because I seemed like a stoner. I was a stoner at the time, but I wasn't a bad kid at all. So remember that, kids. The world hates individuals, but somehow loves them too. What I'm getting at is that humanity is confusing as hell, so just do whatever you feel is best and forget everything else. Ugh, went a little off the rails there. But Mildred gets a big celebration for the day, Ethel gets knocked down several pegs for what she did to Mildred, and Tim Curry offers to take Mildred out for flying lessons. He tells her, you're not the worst witch anymore, and that's the ending of the movie. It's a very sweet and easygoing little movie. It's very dated and stale in some ways, but conversely, somehow completely timeless and super enjoyable. If you already like the actors that are in this, it just makes you love them even more. I've been watching this movie every Halloween since I discovered it, and it used to air on different channels every Halloween up until the late 2000s or so. As I've said several times over, the effects in this movie are truly just something to behold. I mean, I also said that they aged like milk, but you have to do that in order to get good stuff like cheese and yogurt. I make fun of it a lot, but I genuinely do love this oddball TV movie. It's been out of print for some time now, but you can find it in full on YouTube. The quality isn't great, but it was shot in the mid-80s for television, so don't expect 4K or anything like that. I'm going to go ahead and say that I do recommend this along with things like Hocus Pocus or old Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes, maybe Eerie Indiana, probably not Goosebumps though, I don't know, I was never a fan of Goosebumps. Check it out sometime. Now I'm just feeling pissy about high school again. I really need a pick-me-up. So join me next week where Connor and I will be discussing a TV movie that is definitely not for children, a creepy, underrated, and unintentionally hilarious one called Stalking Laura, aka I Can Make You Love Me. Let's end this one on a high note. Play me off, Tim. Hit it! I wouldn't change places with anyone tonight We'll carve pumpkin faces and watch the witches flight Every human heart will shudder Every soul will shake with fear Tonight the curse Tonight, the scariest Tonight
Produced and hosted by me, Meg. Music by Dan Lucas. Follow me on Instagram at Ghouls Only Press. You can support this podcast by supporting my shop, ghoulsonlypress.com. Stay cool, ghoul. Cool.